I'm Brian Cox, I'm a professor at the University of Manchester. I study particle physics at CERN in Geneva. And uh, I'm also the Royal Society Professor for Public Engagement in Science, which means that part of my job is to, um, I suppose, act as an interface um, between uh, research, so the science that's done in this country, and, and the wider public who are not scientists. And that's tremendously important in my view. Um, partly because we are we are funded by you, <laughs> we do we do publicly funded research, and therefore you have a right to know what we're doing. But also, I think that because science is one part, an important part, but one part of our culture, it's uh, no more nor less important than music and art and literature and media, sports, it's one of those necessary parts of our culture and therefore it should be part of the conversation. And so I very strongly believe that, um, that scientists, or at least the scientific establishment, the universities and scientific organisations, have a duty to ensure they are part of the public conversation. And uh, I'm fortunate enough to be a, a small cog in that very big machine. Um, so that's my um, my job, or my, my various jobs, job titles. Um, what was the first piece of design or creativity that I remember and where was it? Um, I suppose, obviously, we interact with design and um, th things that are produced creatively um, since we're born, right? Our lives are surrounded by design. So I suppose the question is, when do you first become aware of it? And when do you first identify it as something that has been designed? And I think, uh, for me, growing up in Manchester and being interested in music, that album covers were my first, um, w the, w the first objects that I owned that, that I knew were designed, that I was interested in the design of. And, and the, because of the, the time that I became aware of music, which would be in the late 70s, early 80s, so I was born in 1968, so I was 11, 12 years old, um, those album covers tended to be designed by Peter Saville because that's the music I was interested in. I didn't actually know that at the time. I, I just knew that I, I was into electronic music, so I bought the first OMD album. And then in particular, a little bit later, OMD's Dazzle Ships, which I think is a, a masterpiece of album cover design. It's it's just striking and spectacular. And... and um, Although I didn't know it at the time, um, the, 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 the kind of, I don't know, the Cold War kind of North Atlantic um, bleakness that I've always been attracted to and still am, because I'm basically an old goth, I suppose, um, were, were, was sort of represented in the music of the album, which I think is a masterpiece. And, and, but also in the, in the cover itself, it, it's cold and angular, um, the use of these very sort of singular almost primary colors but greens and blues and grays and blacks it just um I, it added hugely for me to the atmosphere of the album and um, and i could also mention uh, another of my favorite albums power corruption and lies which is obviously a classic album cover design but again at the time i was into new order because i like synthesizers and i was geeky and um again there's, there's something about that peter savile design in that case a borrowed image um the vase of flowers um that 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 does more than just complement the music that i suppose i suppose in some ways i i was 
carried away by the um, the marketing genius that surrounded Factory Records as well. Um, I, I really did buy into the Factory Records uh, atmosphere and brand, as I would now call it. I didn't know that at the time. I just thought it was uh, it was almost a way of a way of being, you know, an attitude. When I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I, I thought that the, the the way that Factory Records presented themselves uh, was 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 not packaging. It was almost like a philosophy for living, in my view. Now, now uh, maybe I've become more cynical, um, and I've got to know, you know, Malcolm Garrett, Peter Saville, and those designers at the time. So maybe maybe they would say, no, we we were we knew what we were doing. We were doing. <laughs> We were doing commercial design aimed at selling products. I don't know, maybe they'd say that, but um, I felt that they were presenting a way of thinking about the world at the time. So those, so those were my, um, my, my first, the, the first time I noticed, I think, design, even though I wouldn't have put it in those terms. It was when I was 11, 12 years old with uh, album covers. What am I working on right now? I've just finished um, a series for the BBC um, as I speak. It's uh, July. Um, 2021 so uh, we filmed it through the pandemic um, actually the first bit of filming was in the the start of March uh, 2020 so it was just before the pandemic hit I was aware of it and we actually traveled to Madeira to begin filming and uh, filmed for a few days came back and when we came back essentially we were on the verge of lockdown and so the, the whole project was colored by where we could go to film, how we could film in difficult circumstances. Um, and as a result, I think I, I'm very proud of the series and I, I think it has a, an atmosphere and a quality and a look that, that, is, that, that is of its time. It's, um, it's become almost a, a, a hymn in, in a way um, to, to our, to our fragility and um, to the to the remarkable fact that we exist in this vast potentially infinite universe uh, I've, I've always been interested in in a in a, a single question I think there's one particularly interesting question perhaps the only one in philosophy right I'll make that claim and, and the interesting question to me is what does it mean to live a finite fragile life in an eternal infinite universe um, i should say technically we, we don't know whether the universe is eternal or infinite but we for all intents and purposes we can assume it is so so what does it mean to live a fragile finite life in an eternal infinite universe um, all cosmology series ultimately bump up against that question and what we did in this series was we put the the question which is um terrifying and exhilarating in equal measure up front so so right at the start i admit or propose to the audience that what i'm going to talk about should be terrifying you've not understood cosmology if you're not terrified by the infinite spaces um, but also it should be exhilarating because there are some facts that we know that make our position in the universe notwithstanding our fragility, quite remarkable. Um, and, and those facts are, for example, that we, each of us, are composed of a collect we're, we're collections of atoms that are in some sense as old as time, that have come together briefly to be able to think and feel and react to nature and explore the universe. 
that's a remarkable thing. That's what you are. You are a collection of building blocks, each one fundamentally as old as the universe itself. And yet, temporarily, they are together in a pattern that can think. Um, so that makes us, I contend, indescribably valuable, notwithstanding our fragility and physical insignificance. And so that feeling, which I've always had, um, partly actually because uh, we, because I've, I've got a book sat here actually, there it is, uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, uh, one of the most influential books that, that, that I have because I read it when I was 12 years old. That point's been made many times by people like Carl Sagan. But the fact is that notwithstanding our physical insignificance, we are valuable, valuable because we think and react to nature. And that brings me to, I think, the connection that I outlined earlier when I was talking about my job between science and art and culture. Um, science and art, music, design, engineering, um, any human pursuit you can think of, I would say ultimately at the foundation they're all reactions to nature, reactions, nature in the widest sense, with a capital N. They are reactions to um, our, uh, well, they're reactions to the human condition. Right? So, so, and there's a, there's a wonderful book by Douglas Hofstadter called uh, Godel, Escher and Bach, very famous book. Um, so, so Bach, obviously the musician, Escher, obviously the artist, and Godel, maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't, one of the great mathematicians of the 20th century, um, a, a very uh, a, a colleague, ultimately, of Einstein um, in Princeton. But, uh, but, but he was very famous for, for showing that, that um, mathematics itself cannot be uh, a consistent system. Right. You, you can write down things in mathematics that, are, that whose truth or otherwise is not decidable within the system. This was in the 1920s he did this work, and it was hugely important mathematically and philosophically. So we have a book, uh, Godel, Escher and Bach, Mathematics, Music, the Visual Arts. How are they linked? Well, the argument is that nature, right, the truth about the universe, whatever it is, you can imagine as some object and you can imagine science and art and music and literature and philosophy, theology, as different lights that shine on that central object and cast shadows. Now, we only have access to the shadows. Um, and so science casts one shadow, art casts another one, music casts another one, and so on. So we have access to the shadows. But clearly, the more shadows that you consider, the more shadows to which you have access, the more likely you are to be able to reconstruct this central object, which um, we might call, as I said, nature, the universal truth, whatever it is, um, the more likely we are to be able to reconstruct it. So each of those disciplines is intimately related because they're shining lights on the same thing. The motivation behind uh, different disciplines is the same. And I firmly believe that. Um, one of the projects that I worked on recently um, was a collaboration with a symphony orchestra, the Melbourne Symphony. And we also uh, ultimately collaborated the same kind of uh, collaboration with the BBC Symphony at the Barbican um, during lockdown, actually. And the idea was that cosmology raises questions. I've mentioned some of them, terrifying questions about the, what it means to live in this infinite universe. Those 
questions are not going to be answered by cosmology and science. Uh, science gives us a framework. It tells us some facts about our situation and um, facts with which we can't argue. We know how old the universe is, right? Um, certainly the time, the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years, we know there are two trillion galaxies in the observable universe. You can't argue with that. We know that the Earth is not the center of the universe. You can't argue with that. We know the Earth is not flat, by the way. You can't argue with that either. There are facts. Um, but it doesn't tell us what we're to make. Uh, to gain insight in how to react, to discover scientifically, um, we need to shine as many lights. And the collaboration that I had musically with the Melbourne Symphony initially was to say, well, some of the great composers um, of the, 20, the early 20th century, which is the music that I particularly like, uh, in particular Mahler, Sibelius, and a bit later, uh, the American composer Ives, have written music that explores these issues. They didn't know they were exploring these issues. Mahler was certainly exploring the fragility of human existence. Um, he wasn't thinking of cosmology. Cosmology amplifies the need to explore the fragility of our existence. Uh, Sibelius uh, is the third movement of his Fifth Symphony, very famous, beautiful piece of music, which is nominally about swans taking flight from a lake, but is it not too much more you'd have to go much deeper below the surface of the music to realize that it's a celebration of nature in all its power and terrifying beauty um, and that has something to say about uh, it has some it, it allows us to um or, or gives us more ammunition if you like to react to the the, the terrifying discoveries of science um, and Ives is a beautiful piece of music called The Unanswered Questions. So that's fairly obvious, right? <laughs> the science poses questions that, to us, deep questions that certainly at the moment remain unanswered. So um, that was one thing that I worked on during the lockdown, which was, but it's an example of the fact that it's not, you don't have to work hard to, to, to collaborate across disciplines. Right? It doesn't, it's not contrived in any sense. Um, because of this central truth that there are many ways of looking at our existence and looking at life and considering these deep challenges. And all of them, none of them are sufficient on their own. And I would argue that all of them are necessary. The more lights we can shine, the better. So uh, allow me to offer some advice, because I've been asked to offer some, right? I, I, I wouldn't normally... Um, be so presumptuous to, to offer advice to you but um since i've been asked what's my advice um i've had a i've had a very diverse career so i you may or may not know that i started in music so um i as i've described i was interested in music and the design around music and, and music itself for a long time since i was 11 12 years old and when i was 18 i didn't go to university i uh, left school and joined a band and um, that band got a record deal fortunately for me it was a band called Dare um, and we made some albums and we toured and it wasn't till the age of 23 that I left the band went to university to study um, initially astronomy astrophysics because I'd always been interested in astronomy uh, partly for romantic reasons I just found looking at the night sky a powerful uh, emotional pursuit um, so I went back to university at 23, 
did astronomy, that turned into theoretical physics and particle physics, uh, did a PhD, uh, then um, went back accidentally into the promotion of science, um, the uh, partly actually politically, I should say, because I, I became quite politically active in the sense of I was arguing for more funding for science and for education because I firmly believe that education is one of the necessary foundations of our society and the more educated we are all able to be the better our society is so i became so slightly politically active that got me in touch with the media and uh, so I, I was on a few programs news night and things like that arguing for more funding for science and that led completely accidentally to the bbc saying well why don't you make a make a documentary with us it was on bbc4 at the time a really cheap documentary but just just make one about about cern and what you're doing at cern uh, and then i got asked to do some things on the radio and fell into this new career of uh making television documentaries primarily um which has been wonderfully rewarding um and so i suppose in some ways is the best fit for my character because it allows me to do the science the thing that i love but also be involved in a in an artistic sense in creating something which is really impressionistic I mean, the thing about for me i mentioned carl sagan actually cosmos the reason that i love this documentary series more than any other is because it's 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 not just a list of facts it's a polemic it's a it's a, a it's a, a synthesis of um of of ideas and it's a I think I should just let me repeat it's a polemic it's, it's polemical it deals with how thinking scientifically and how taking the discoveries that we've made about nature seriously can not only can but do form the bedrock of our civilization and allow us to make progress as, as, as a civilization and so um so I I, I found this sort of almost dream job um accidentally and that that leads me to my bit of advice which is that um, I don't think you necessarily need to know what you want to do as, as a student, or I don't think that you should treat being a student as, as, as a conveyor belt that is leading in a direction. There's some kind of thing you have to do. So you have to get a degree or you have to get a, a diploma or some qualification or whatever it is. Um, I think you should treat it as a, as a privilege and as a um a, allow it to allow yourself the luxury of enjoying the process of acquiring knowledge and skills for their own sake um because it may well be that the job you end up doing has got nothing to do with the specifically with the knowledge and skills you've acquired um but it will have a lot to do with it because process of going through education that great luxury that, that, that we all share um, is part of building your character and so therefore it will contribute to your future life i think i'm trying to try not to take it too seriously in a sense value it hugely massively but um allow yourself to grow because because who knows what you'll be doing in a 10 20 years time i didn't think when i was 12 years old listening to omd albums and looking at peter savile's covers that i would end up making television documentaries um or indeed doing a phd in particle physics um i actually probably thought i'd be in a band um which i managed to do a little bit but there you go